Uh, Dan, well, how are we going to do this? I know we saw the same big new release this week. Sure. Why don't we start there? All right. Would you like to? Well, uh, you have to describe yeah. the. Well, the I mean, Hustlers is a 2019 American crime drama film. <laughs> it's written and directed by Lorene Scafaria, based on a New York Magazine's 2015 article, The Hustlers It Scores, by Jessica Pressler. And I didn't really know what to expect going into this, except that a few people on my feed were pretty excited about it. And I'm hearing it's heightened from a typical movie that you might guess about dancers. Uh, um, Jennifer Lopez stars alongside Constance Wu, who, I, I mean, she can do anything as far as I'm concerned. Um, Julia Stiles is in this. Where's Julia Stiles been since I was in yeah, high school? Um, Kiki Palmer, Lily Reinhardt, Lizzo, and Cardi B. Frankly, the last of those two I wish we would have seen more of in the movie. Um, but these are about a crew of strippers in New York City who, after the crash in 2008, find themselves short on customers. Um, but these guys who had been showing up still have their corporate credit cards. And so they start making their own drugs and um, drugging these guys, getting them into the club, and then running up their credit cards and bleeding them dry. And boy, did I have a good time at this movie. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's so lyrical. This is where I'm so appreciative um, that we have a woman filmmaker at the helm because there was such beauty and taste and distinction, you know, in those scenes where Jennifer Lopez is teaching how to pole dance. You've got the Chopin in the background. It's it's so yeah. artistic and heightened as she teaches her art. And, and that kind of uh, scoring comes back throughout. I thought the acting was great. I thought the story was interesting that this actually happened. I was confused about the details a little bit, how they were able to just run up the credit cards and then somehow get the money back themselves. How was the club allowing them to do that? But I yeah. guess they did. And wouldn't you claim fraud? Were these people too humiliated that they just let it go sometimes or what? But uh, they did get away with it. And a I mean, the two main ones without any jail time, shockingly. Um, let me tell you a tale of two trailers, Dan. A few months back, the trailer for this and the trailer for The Goldfinch, which I know we're <laughs> going to talk about in a little bit, uh, came you know, started to show in, the, in theaters. Uh, the Goldfinch looked so intriguing and rich and highbrow and interesting to me. And this looked kind of trashy and like a Scorsese ripoff. And it just didn't interest me at all. Here, flash forward. I didn't even bother with the Goldfinch this week based on Buzz. And uh, I was right there opening night. And I did. I had a hoot with this movie. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I'll go to almost anything Jennifer Lopez is in. I think that she just brings like such a naturalness to all of her characters. And how old is she? Like 21? because yeah. she looks amazing and and she totally can play the type of role that of someone who brings the experience in this field and is completely confident um and, and still does it so well one thing that i noticed and i think kind of appreciated about the movie was while the style of it was very much that kind of uh you know american gothic crime story scorsese kind of sweeping uh direction style 
the difference is that in a lot of those crime movies, gangster movies, the criminals are, you know, completely loathsome people who are constantly screaming at each other. Whereas you get some of that towards the end when things start to unravel in this movie. But by and large, these are people who care about each other. They are, you know, uh, affectionate and funny and interesting. Like it was a much more interesting movie in terms of the characters. Yeah, they were to me. They were really human. I liked that one. The one argument um, after they're leaving the the courthouse or the jail or wherever, and it's like they're going to get into a fight, but then suddenly it becomes clear to Lopez why Constance Wu did what she did, and she realizes she would have done the same thing because really this was about building a life for themselves and supporting their kids ultimately, and that it wasn't about. Um, solidarity even or making money and she kind of forgives her in that moment on on the street and i found that to be really refreshing rather than having a big falling out that we need to resolve later and not to reduce it to um make it too simplistic or bring you know gender politics into it but being a woman-based story told by a woman filmmaker i think has a lot to do with why i i feel like it's a little more rich in terms of the characters. Absolutely. I don't think that's a reduction either. I think it. this movie could have taken a lot of wrong steps and it could have been just like any other movie like this. And it wasn't. To me, this is set apart and uh, a special film. Dan, what about uh, The Goldfinch? I understand you saw The Goldfinch. Absolutely, I did. So I agree with you. The story of two trailers. This had so much expectation people were putting it on its on their uh, best picture prediction lists uh in, when we were in the sight on the scene era yeah. and just like just by by pedigree clearly this one is going to be good and it looks like a million dollars you know like Roger Deakins is a cinematographer um it, yeah. it is very it's a very enjoyable film to watch it has quite a cast including uh Nicole Kidman and Sarah Paulson, Luke Wilson makes an appearance. Jeffrey Wright does a great job as um, kind of an older mentor to the young protagonist. And I wasn't aware of this novel or what the plot was. So I was going in completely cold to what's going on here. I think that this property would have made a much better miniseries or even regular TV series with multiple seasons because there's so much going on and there's so much plot and you can determine four seasons of life that this character goes through that they try to pack into two and a half hours. And so mm-hmm. it feels at once rushed and overlong. But I like the characters. I like the writing, the story, even though I'm getting it at breakneck speed is an interesting story. I wish that there just would have been more time with the characters. I wish we could have spent more time in each season of life. Um, so the long and short of the plot, if there's a way to do this and sh- do this shortly, I know I ramble on with my plot expositions, but we meet young Theo at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and there's a terrorist attack. And in the immediate aftermath of the attack, his mom has disappeared and this man who is laying dying, lying dying in the rubble tells him to take this painting of the goldfinch to make sure the terrorists don't get it. And also the man gives him a ring and says, 
take this to my antique shop and give this to my partner. And so the boy takes the painting, but he doesn't tell anyone he has it. And he takes the ring and he meets the partner at the antique shop who is kind of a furniture restorer. And he becomes this man's friend. And he also meets the niece of the man who died, who is, was injured in the blast. And they bond over both having been in the attack. And he lives with Nicole Kidman's family. They're a rich family in New York. And it seems like things are going well, that he's going to be adopted by this family when all of a sudden his deadbeat dad, Luke Wilson, shows up out of nowhere after having been gone with his um, girlfriend, played by Sarah Paulson. And they're going to move him to Las Vegas. So he moves to Las Vegas with these parental figures who are not helpful and abuse drugs and alcohol. And he meets a Ukrainian boy who has no supervision and together they abuse drugs and alcohol. And the time comes where he has to escape this living situation. He's back to New York where he's going to live with this antiques restorer from earlier. And then he grows up and then he's in the antiques business and he has a fiance in a marriage of convenience. And then there's a whole drug crime plot and the loss of the painting and trying to get the painting back and the self-loathing about him, him feeling responsible for his mother's death and for the loss of the painting. And there's just so much plot in two and a half hours, multiple lifetimes, multiple uh, parts of the country that we see so many characters that don't get to be developed. All of these critiques aside, I enjoyed the movie. I thought it was just fine. I see people's criticisms of it. Um, but it certainly isn't bad. It just maybe should have been something else. Did it make you want to read the book? I would be interested in the book because I understand that the author's voice played a big role in why it is a Pulitzer winning novel. And mm -hmm. I imagine that you could spend more time in each season of life and get to know the characters. What's missing for many of the characters is their inner life, which would be crucial to understand. Yeah. All we hear throughout is the narration from the moment where the guy is contemplating suicide. And so mm -hmm. we're kind of like, okay, something so bad has happened that we're going to find out that this guy wants to end his life. And then we come to realize that maybe there, there are some reasons where he feels just this intense guilt over his past wrongs, but he's projecting it onto the idea of this painting and the idea of having lost a piece of art that humanity will now never get back because of him, you know, and that's yeah. the, and that seems pretty melodramatic. Um, even though it's attached to all these other reasons why he's in distress. So you wouldn't say, you don't think this is in the goldfinch is in the category with like book of Henry or life itself is like an, a, a swing at a prestige movie that is completely bonkers and backfires right i wouldn't say that it's bonkers i wouldn't say that it backfires i would say it was a swing at a prestige film and i think that for a property of this magnitude tv short form would have been a better medium because i could imagine it as a miniseries i could imagine it being multi-season of 10 episodes where we yeah. could have spent 10 whole episodes with him as a young boy with that family and then 10 whole episodes in Las Vegas with the Ukrainian friend and 10 whole episodes when he makes it back to New York and then 10 episodes with the crime thing. Like 
And I think the plot would have held because it's a pretty simple plot, but it was interesting. And I think mm-hmm. we would have gotten to know characters better and it wouldn't have been so rushed. Yeah. I'll probably stream it out of curiosity someday. It's very, to me, it was great to watch. I like quiet movies. I like pretty locales and cool clothes and brooding people. You know, it's it's not for everybody, but I like it. I caught up on streaming something from last year. It might even be two years old at this point. I watched mid-90s. Oh, what did you think of that? Uh, directed by Jonah Hill. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, I really quite liked it. It's a very um, well-directed, concise, evocative movie. In no way reflects my own experiences in the mid-90s. It is about um, skateboarders in Southern California from abusive homes. Uh, so none of the experiences overlap. And yet I found it very evocative of, of the 90s. I recognized the way the kids talked and the things that they cared about and how it felt, how awkward it felt and how exciting it felt. Uh, I think it's a very uh, well-made little movie. Um, it's basically, it follows a group of kids, but one in particular who comes from a, a uh, broken and abusive home. He's got a mom and a big brother. The big brother is Lucas Hedges hmm. of uh, Boy Erased and Lady Bird. And, and what's he not in? Uh, yeah, he's in a whole bunch and he's very different here. He's a brooding, nasty uh, brother who beats up his little brother every day. Basically, this kid stumbles into a skate shop and becomes friends with some older boys. Uh, They kind of take him under their wing. And as a viewer, especially someone who's old and a parent, the movie does a really interesting thing where I was feeling alarmed, like, oh, no, these are bad kids. And, oh, no, don't teach him that. Oh, don't introduce him to that. Oh, no. But then eventually you realize, well, wait a minute, these, these guys are taking care of him. They're giving him a family. They're giving him what his family can't give him. And uh, I actually found that surprisingly moving. It reminds me a little bit, not not the same exact themes, but just the same vibe as the, um, uh, what is that, uh, that documentary about skateboarding from last year? Minding the Gap. That's what it was oh, called, Minding right. the Gap. To uh, fast forward to the end, because the ending is the only thing I have issues with in, in this movie. Uh, I won't spoil it too much, but basically the mom of this little boy and I'm sorry, I don't know the actor's name. He's, uh, he's excellent. He's great. He's a very, he's, he come, he's like a little kid who wants to be a big kid and he's, he really uh, nails the role. His mom catches wind of who he's been hanging out with. She storms into the skate shop and tells them off, stay away from my son. Don't give him drugs. Don't do this. He's just a little kid. Uh, and then the big climax and, and resolution of the whole movie is that the the group of skater friends get into an SUV when one of them is extremely stoned and they get into a terrible accident. And I won't get into the details of what happens, but essentially this horrible accident caused by the delinquency of one of these kids magically fixes everything. And the family gets along with the friends and everybody's okay. And, and it was very, the ending rubbed me the wrong way. It didn't feel like it lived up to, to what had come before, oh. but uh, I would recommend streaming uh, mid nineties, which is uh, currently on, I think it was Amazon prime. That's what I saw this week. So I, okay. I have a question for you. Are you, do you have any idea what this into the dark thing is about into the dark? Uh-huh. Because I've streamed a couple movies and then I try to find them and I can't find them. And then it's like, that was an episode of into the dark. 
but it was a movie. And I don't know if Into the Dark is like a series of kind of creepy, scary movies or what the deal is. But I watched um, two installments from this. IMDb says that it is a horror anthology series with each episode inspired by a holiday. Oh. Okay. Well, I watched two of them. And I guess now that I'm looking on Wikipedia under Into the Dark, the first was School Spirit. And the holiday is the first day of school. So we're being a little loose with this holiest of days yes and i'm having trouble finding um a lot of information about who's in this the main conceit is that it's early in the school year and we have a saturday detention so it's kind of breakfast clubby but contemporary and in the course of events someone talks about how their school mascot who is an admiral um is there's a legend where this teacher was killed by students accidentally and they disrespected her corpse. And so she dresses up, the ghost does, as the admiral and haunts students in the school. And indeed, as the Saturday detention goes on, this admiral is uh, walking through the hallways and is killing students who end up alone in terrible ways. And we discover some secrets of the school. And I mean, no, no surprise here that the the evil is ultimately destroyed, and there's a cover up of what actually happened, and the one person who perhaps most deserved to uh, makes it out alive. So it wasn't very good, but it wasn't bad either, and it was perfectly acceptable to have on in the background. Do you mm-hmm. get Do you get the title? Because it's like school spirit but also a ghost. Oh, there's a, there's a spirit. Yeah. Which is the locus of which is yeah. the school. Yeah. Got it. So that's, that's what's going on. So All right. and this, was, is, looks like this is a series on Hulu. Yeah. And the other one, that, cause I'm like thinking this is, these are movies because they're like two hours. Hmm. So it doesn't, it doesn't ring to me like a television episode, but I guess there's more blurring of those boundaries in our in our new landscape the second one which was probably more interesting is called pure and that holiday is daughter's day which i suppose there's a holiday for everything but i'm not aware of what daughter's day is this is about evangelical purity culture and they make a horror movie out of it that's intriguing yeah. The, the trouble here is that the screenwriter knows the words, but not the music to this culture. Mm. And I think that it would have been a lot more thrilling and scary had they actually developed characters who you might find. So what's going on here is that there is a father and daughter purity retreat that will culminate in a purity ball where the girls sign contracts about their sexuality and the fathers are given keys to one day give to the girls' husbands. And this father and daughter have been coming for years. I forget the father's name. The daughter's name is like Hannah or something. And this year he's coming with his other daughter that he didn't know he had, named Shay. Now, Shay and Hannah are the same age, because the father was cheating on Hannah's mother while she was pregnant with Hannah, thus um, 
creating Shay as well. And even though there's some irony in going to a purity ball um, with your daughter from a relationship that was out of infidelity, um, he does this because he wants to bring Shay up in the same way that he's brought Hannah up. And so we meet the pastor who has these purity retreats, and he's introduced with a, a gun that he's openly carrying, which seemed kind of like a strange thing. I don't think that most pastors open carry guns at their purity retreats. Um, not yeah. like the the slick, well, mega churchy, young, cool, hip pastors, which this guy's trying to be. Mm-hmm. And you, we go to the first time of Bible teaching. A permanent amphitheater has been erected in this camp. Three stained glass windows, and they're all of Lilith. And the only reason to have Lilith is so that we can have the spirit of Lilith be conjured up by the young campers. And you'd think that Lilith would help the girls overthrow their oppressors, but rather um, Lilith oppresses and hassles the girls and scares them. And if you are caught sinning sexually in the course of the weekend, which I guess several are, you're thrown in a cage to pray. And ultimately we get to the purity ball, which is the big moment of revenge against all the men in the camp um, a big revenge fantasy sequence where Lilith finally helps the girls or the spirit of Lilith um, goes through the girls or whatever. So it was a good idea. Sure. But I just don't think that probably Lilith is central teaching at evangelical purity camp. No, that sounds kind of convenient. Yeah. Yeah. And it, there was no reason for a supernatural element. I think the, actual retreat and ball might have been scary enough and i think that if you wanted a horror ending you could have had these young women attack in any sort of a way because they are they are being brutalized by the end and completely oppressed by all surrounded by men um there's betrayal there are secrets of the camp that are revealed um entrapment we find out and I, I could have just seen this whole thing happen without the supernatural element, and I might sure. have enjoyed it a lot more. And a documentary about purity culture might have been <laughs> right. more frightening. Yeah, I mean, don't, don't even need the documentary. Just like bring us those characters, and, right. and and like kind of let this thing get weirder and scarier through the eyes of someone who's seeing it for the first time, and then tack on the horror revenge ending. That reminds me of two, um, while we're on the subject of portrayals of evangelicalism on television, on streaming television, uh, I finally caught up with The Righteous Gemstones on HBO. Mm, I've heard of it, which but I, I've not which watched it. I think it. is pretty good. It's a Danny McBride uh, show basically about a big, rich evangelical family and their mega church and and the insanity. And it's it's a comedy and it's heightened and it's cartoonish, but it's also... It uh, it's not totally concerned with getting it right. It's not supposed to be like commentary. It's it's a, it's a dumb comedy. But I'm surprised how much of it actually they do get correct because they're not rabid bigots spitting hate at a pulpit. They consider themselves to be very uh, moderate and very inclusive and open minded, um, and they're just cravenly awful hypocritical people. It's uh, it's pretty fun. Um. 
also though on Netflix I watched the limited series The Family which is a documentary series about um basically how evangelicalism has uh, poisoned Washington DC it's about the the group that runs the prayer breakfasts and has had a, an audience with every president since I think Gerald Ford mm-hmm. uh, is harrowing very, very I bet I think that might I might be a little too close for that one yeah <laughs> all right um Let's take a little break and we'll come back and talk about a movie. See you in a bit. Welcome back. It's Dan and Josh. And uh, this week's movie was Dan's pick. Dan, what did you ask us to watch? Well, it's not all that old, but I don't care because I wanted to watch it. So Black Swan is a 2010 American psychological thriller film directed by Darren Aronofsky. And when I saw this years ago, I did not know at the time that I would become a big fan of Darren Aronofsky, but I enjoy his stuff quite a bit. Of course, it is starring... Natalie Portman, who won an Oscar for her role. Also, uh, Vincent, is it Castle or Cassell? Cassell, um, I believe. Cassell, okay. And uh, Mila Kunis, who's just wonderful in this. Barbara Hershey, wonderful performance. And I forgot Winona Ryder was in it. Yeah, me too. And boy, was that a fun surprise. How could I forget like a drunken screaming and yeah. stabbing herself in the face? <laughs> How could I have forgotten about it's that? It's a tiny amount of screen time, but yeah, boy, does it legendary Winona. I I mean, she's the perfect person to be cast in that kind of role. Anyway, Natalie Portman plays Nina, a ballerina um, in Lincoln Center, and she is fragile. She is fearful, not very confident of herself, but as a ballet dancer, she has perfected her technique to a high degree, which of course she would have at that caliber. Her problem is that she can't lose herself in her dancing, she's too concentrated on being perfect, which is actually what uh, loses her the perfection she seeks. And she meets a new dancer played by Mila Kunis, who is not as technically proficient, but she dances with a, a, a sensuousness and a loveliness and an ease that uh, Portman is fascinated by and also sort of resents. And uh, Portman's in a pretty terrible, psychologically abusive relationship with her mother who treats her like she's 10 years old. And in the course of time, she is cast as the new Swan Queen in the new production of Swan Lake. She knows how to do the white swan just perfectly because that is the kind of dancer she is naturally, but she struggles with the black swan where she needs to be a little bit more like how Mila Kunis is. And so madness ensues, madness takes over her life until she finally has the performance of a lifetime where her work as the black swan is everything she could ever have dreamed it would be and more. So, um, Josh, what is your history with this movie? Uh, I saw it. It, uh, I did not see it theatrically. It probably was even after the Oscars, but I saw it on home video, whatever it would have been at the time, DVD, Blu-ray, um, and very much enjoyed it. I think I was already aware of Aronofsky 
as a talent. I think he had already made, uh, definitely had made Requiem for a Dream, which was a a movie that I noticed and that stuck with me. So I think I was all in, and I thought she was excellent. I thought that the film was very stark and 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 beautiful and tragic and upsetting all at the same time. Um, and and watching it again, I felt it all come rushing back. I have some quibbles and questions and thoughts seeing it again. It's interesting to revisit things, you know, even a decade, a lot of things can change, but overall, I think this is an excellent movie. I think that I'll say this in broad terms now, and maybe we'll get into the specifics a bit, but people accuse Aronofsky of just being weird or random or crazy. I think that he is artistically committed to honesty in his filmmaking in a, in a way he doesn't pull punches and sometimes maybe the artistic language he uses is hard to penetrate, but I don't think he's ever being random or weird. I think everything has a place. I think he's just uncompromising and gets as obsessed as his characters do with the subject matter. And that makes for some fairly intense movies. Yeah. And I forgot how brutal this movie was. uh, It was came rushing back. I must've put it away. Like all this stuff with the fingernails (laughs) And yeah. like how body something horror, straight up body yeah, how, right something is always bleeding or in terrible crushing pain, but in small little ways like on a finger or a toe, there's just horrific um, things, and we're not sure if it's actually happening some of the time or if it's part of her madness. I, I feel like Ebert's review of this movie looked at it very surface level of the perfection that's demanded of say ballerinas or of athletes and how much punishment uh, you put in your body in order to appear to be this perfect, graceful, flawless swan. And yeah. underneath, there's all of this pain and sacrifice. And yeah, that, that's, a, that's a real thing. I, I see it even more on a, on a cosmic or emotional or psychological level of just how damaged this character is. And and the stuff that's going on on the surface is just a, a fraction of what's going on inside of her. I saw this movie right when it came out. And I think overall, I liked it. I really liked um, Portman's performance. I liked the weirdness of it. I, I like kind of the over-the-top melodramatic uh, relationship she has with her mother. Um, I like the sequences that seem like they're her in her own head. And we're not quite sure what's real and what's not by the end. Um, I think it. I think the final act is just great, where we watch the ballet unfold. And I think that back then I kind of liked a. The, I put a theological lens on it, where you have to take a really bad fall from what you think is perfection in order to be released into what true perfection will be for you. But there's always some sort of a bloodshed or a cross to bear, I think is how yeah. I would have seen it. And I can still see that trajectory, certainly, of what happened in the ballet. I don't think that I would be so taken with that with right. that um, trajectory today. But that's what came back to me as I was watching it. Yeah, there's something... Um, I feel like there is a lot going on. I feel like he knows exactly what he wants to say. I don't know if it is about what you have to trade uh, from yourself and your sanity in order to reach, you know, the, the, the peak of some artistic endeavor. I don't know if it's 
the spirit of the piece, specifically Black Swan, that it, it kind of infects her life and all the things that are already in her life that are sources of anxiety and conflict all become ramped up to this operatic level. Or if it's the if the baggage she already has from this this relationship with her mother, but all that stuff kind of swirls together um, and creates this very palpable psychological drama. Um, I guess if we're going to get into, if I'm going to give my one caveat, it's not really a caveat. It's just an interesting thing to think about. I don't know what I think about it, but the one thing I noticed that I didn't remember at all and don't think I noticed last time is the Vincent Cassell character. I mean, this is a real me too situation Mm -hmm. in the movie. And it's almost, I guess one of the things that I was weirded out by is how sometimes he's like this disgusting monster, but other times it's kind of cute. And it's almost like there's a little romantic back and forth. And the scene in the last act where she runs over and kisses him. And then he's got this dopey look on his face. I found him so loathsome by that point. Like I say, I really feel like there's this sense that everything that was already kind of toxic or or problematic in her life gets kind of ramped up as she gives herself over to the black swan. And so you've got the, the stuff with her mother reaches this crescendo and this, uh, we can talk about whether you know how much of Mila Kunis is is a real character and how much of it is a projection of of Nina's alternate self and and all, but all these things that were already problematic uh, reach these incredible uh, dramatic heights. Yeah, I agree. I he seemed um, Cassell seemed predatory toward her, and at the same time, never seemed to act on it or barely seemed to act on it except when she became open to it as well. Like when he takes her to his apartment, for example, after that gala, he yeah. that's not an appropriate time to be talking business. But if he's trying to understand the sensuality and the sexuality of the character, which is what she's struggling with as an artist, that's not necessarily an off-limits conversation for a director to be having. You need to approach it very carefully, though, and with boundaries where you're not drunk late night at your apartment, certainly. Um, But it doesn't seem like he has any interest in her that evening because when the conversation's done, he just kind of dismisses her. Yeah. Um, And that, but it, but there remains this tension with that, too, where he tries to seduce her in the uh, with the pretense of trying to get her to understand what she's not understanding about her character. But when she begins to open up and starts to go with him there, he shames her for having been seduced by him instead of seducing him. And she's left humiliated. So it's a very twisted, um, very twisted relationship. Of course, it's a complete power imbalance. He has all the power because he could remove her from this dream job at any time. I don't want to discount that in in what we're looking at. At the same time, he also seems to push her away, which is probably part of the abuse, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. I forget who said it, but there was a line somewhere in the middle of the movie about, you know, just watch. uh, He'll call you. What was it that he called? uh, Little Prince. Yeah, he'll he'll call you that. And she was like, no, that was special for her. And then at the very end, he does call her that. Mm hmm. I thought it was interesting how immature her character was and how so much of what goes on uh, moving into the third act is her standing up for herself, her finding her voice, 
her coming into maturity. And yet it's such low stakes. Like her life is so repressed that these small acts like of telling her mother that she's going to go to work rather than stay in bed. That's not really a a huge act of defiance for someone in their mid twenties, but for her it is. Stealing a a wooden post to block your door. That's a kid thing. Right. And like when she arrives at the theater and it looks like um, her understood, like Mila Kunis is going to go on in her place and she just kind of says, well, you haven't announced it. And so I'm doing it. That seems like a huge standing up for herself from what we've seen before. But really, that's just a completely reasonable thing to walk in and say, oh, someone told you I was sick. Well, I'm not. And here I am. So we're doing it. That actually isn't being very assertive. But for her, it is. And at the end, ultimately, she feels she needs to attack and kill Mila Kunis because it's her time, not yeah. you know, not the other. And clearly, this is a piece of inner turmoil we discover she's having with herself. She needs to attack and kill that perfect piece of her that is holding her back from actual perfection. And that, to me, is what then transpires on stage, that unthinkable fall from an easy place. And yeah. it's a professional humiliation which sets her free for the wonderful um, second act dancing. Yeah. Uh, and and great great integration of, of effects in that sequence. Mm-hmm. The transformation. Yes. It's beautiful. It's it holds up very well ten years later. Um but the so the Mila Kunis character, and again, sorry I don't remember her character's name. Uh, uh Lily. I think that's Lily. an important name. Mm-hmm. Uh how is she a real person at all? Is she a real person who gets incorporated into Nina's self you know, exploration or is she completely a projection? Is it a Tyler Durden type of a situation? I don't think that she's completely a projection because she does interact with Cassell and she does interact with the other girls. I need to rewatch because it's true when she walks in, it seems like she's mostly ignored by the other people in the company, but she does talk to them and they do, you know, turn toward her. Like she's a real person who's there. I think that that, um, and she's there at the end too, looking in yeah, and right. you know congratulating her. And well, the weird thing is, I was thinking about it, and really, uh, Lily, really for the most part, just seems like a normal person. Mm-hmm. She just seems like a normal girl with a normal life. And then I think, well, but she did these horrible things. She drugged Nina, but she didn't drug Nina because she says she wasn't even there. Right. She says so, she. I think that, I mean, Nina, I mean, even in Nina's own mind, she watched those pills go in her drink, even if that didn't really happen, like in her fantasy, she watched it happen. Mm -hmm. And then she said just a few hours confirming Mm -hmm. almost that she knew that there were drugs in that drink. Yeah. I I just feel like if um, she was out with Mila Kunis, and I think maybe she was, maybe that's where the night really ended and maybe she went home with that other guy or something. I don't think that Mila Kunis went home with her. I remember the first time I watched it thinking how bizarre it was to like go in your bedroom when your mom is basically right. attacking you and trying to get in the room and thinking, right. Oh sure. Let me just continue this encounter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how bizarre and, and how bizarre that was, but clearly it was because she wasn't really there. So Dan, how do you, um, how do you rank this among the Aronofsky's? Oh, I haven't seen enough. Like I say, you know, I'm a fan and I am of what I've seen. Um, I think it, I think it's up there. 
I think yeah. that it's uh, accessible, whereas some other stuff has been less accessible. Mm-hmm. I, I think that the themes are very exactly. I think the themes are very clear, and they're not necessarily profound, but it's enough to hold a movie like this. I yeah. think that um, the ballet looks beautiful. It's a wonderful looking movie. The cast was just right. Portman gives a great performance. And I think that that's kind of consensus. I don't think that there's anyone who didn't think she deserved the Oscar that year. Yeah, this is a, um, unlike something like Birth, this is a movie that has enjoyed a good reputation and I be- I think still does. Yeah, maybe it wasn't the best pick for uh, trying to think of something is still good years later. But I think that I approached it a little differently than I did today. I I like it even better today than I did then. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it's, it was fun to watch and fun to talk about it. And as I, as I say, I really dig Aronofsky's whole vibe. I think maybe 10 years ago, I was more into something that was weird for weird sake. And I just like to watch uh, challenging movies, but watching it now in my kind of, you know, increasingly curmudgeonly, mode i just appreciated it as a as a piece of work it is a it's a very well-made film it's beautiful it, it holds up in all the ways you want it to i like looking at it and thinking about it so um it gets high marks for me yeah and it was um and it was a big oscar year too that was king's speech and social network and the fighter wow. and yeah. black swan i mean that was that's a big year really really packed best picture race yeah has there been a year that packed since um i don't know i think that the these last couple might um might be up there with it i don't know that's you know for 10 years later maybe to see like one a movie i need to look back on is social network because i only saw that one time when it first yeah. came out and i don't think that i was at a place of maturity uh to to really appreciate what was going on in that movie. And I think all these years removed too of, you know, Facebook and everything that social media has come to mean and, and uh, the impact that it's had on, on culture. I think that probably social network maybe should have won that year. Yeah. Um, My, my, my trouble with social network is, is even at the time, but especially since realizing how little it has to do with the reality behind the founding of Facebook, but I think it still has a lot to say. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, it, it's what um, Sorkin is really good at is just, you know, writing scripts that comment on things, though it, it's not uh, a very good document of what actually went down in terms of the story behind Facebook. I think that's true. I, I, I like the idea of the founder of Facebook having no friends. <laughs> sure. <laughs> and just endlessly right. refreshing. And that that that's a mood. Speaking of Sorkin, by the way, did you see some dude on Twitter was uh, posting clips from Sunset uh, Strip? What is it? Studio sixty on the Sunset Strip. He was just saying uh-huh. everybody forgot how bonkers this show was, and I'd never seen it, and I really enjoyed that rabbit hole of hmm. wow, that was an insane show. Like Aaron Sorkin is just such a strange guy. He can write so many topics, sports and news and things, with like real insight but him writing about comedy oh boy if i'm remembering correctly i feel like that show had was unfortunate to come out at the same time as 30 yes. rock because yeah. it was a similar pre- i mean not a similar premise but you know both the same kind yeah, of show yeah. and and everyone loved 
30 rock yeah all right dan uh that's black swan any other any other things to to say as we wrap up all i right. got nothing hey thanks, sure, for, thanks for bringing it up i enjoyed it it was nice to uh-huh. revisit i think let's see i'm just gonna kind of throw a dart here at my list and say we are going to check we are going to check out the majestic great <laughs> i vaguely remember that movie but yeah. i never saw it i don't think. i hate this movie in my memory because it was frank darabont like just going off in all the wrong directions no stephen king adding jim carrey i just remember and uh but the the general consensus on this movie is that oh it's it holds up brilliantly and and it was a missed gem so i'm kind of eager to give it another shot awesome all right dan thanks for showing up i always like it when you do which you always do i like it when you showed up yeah i do show up yeah (laughs) it's fun when when we show show up up. and uh, this has been our podcast with dan and josh you can follow us both on twitter and letterboxd the show is at holds up pod on twitter our theme music is by jonah rapino and we'll see you next time thanks bye And it seems like it just could have all been avoided with some simple research. Yep. Well, did you see he's now responded to the firing? Ugh. And, and, and how has he responded? No hint of, of introspection or apology. He just ended it by saying, I'm more of a mad TV guy anyway. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Which actually tracks because if I recall, that show's pretty racist. Right. <laughs>